is down there, so um, let's get right to it. This, um, you know, I struggle with sermon titles, so this is always one that is uh, going to catch your attention because when I first gave a, my first message in the Navigators at Ball State, there was a family. <clears throat> it was a family dinner to appreciate the families. And then uh, they asked me to give a message on the grace of God. I was three years old in the Lord. And I had no idea what the grace of God was. And I remember doing Bible study and thinking, I, have no, I can't figure this out. I don't know how to communicate this. But the only thing I remember from that whole time of preparation was this one. I don't even know the source. It says, uh, grace is that which paralyzes the human soul to look at Christ. And I thought that that has stayed with me, that grace is not just God's riches at Christ's expense, it's there's something more to this. And actually, the, the, um, it, this becomes my definition of what maturity in Christ is all about. It's like it's getting used to grace. I once asked a group of uh, Japanese pastors and I would do this often because I knew the situation in Japan. I said, how do you help your people grow in the grace of Christ? And their answer was, we don't. We don't know how to do that. Because the pressure as a Christian in Japan is, is different because of the cultural overlay. So much so that your tithe is announced, your name and how much money is announced on the wall every week. So there's, there's an expectation, and so if you don't get to church, if you don't do that, there's pressure. But Peter wanted us to grow in grace. And so this, this whole idea this morning is I want to share with you that there's something about this wondrous grace that we sing about. I want to take you into some things that, that I've been thinking about and in light of what we've been talking with conversion and repentance and transformation and calling so that the God of peace and the peace of God would become experienced in your life. Last week, we were talking about our calling, that we as a called people, uh, we know there are two different ways that God works, as he's calling the Jewish people, as he's calling the Gentile people. There's a general calling. Many are called, but few are responding, few are chosen. But then the second part, if you've ever heard of this idea of calling, usually it's been... In my, my experience, and maybe yours, is you've always heard that phrase being used as you've called into the ministry, you've called into the missions. And that's not really what Paul is thinking about, but we have adapted it to think that way, that only the missionary is called and the Christian is not, we don't talk that way. And so the idea that, that when Paul went through that list last week, that we are called to be saints. We're called to be involved in the kingdom. We're called... As a society, there's the great community. But there's, there's more to that, that the Spirit of God that is out to heal and reverse the curse and to bring about that change is part of all of our calling. So I say, I'm not called to the ministry. We are called to the ministry. And so, in this day and age, in particular this day and tomorrow, we've got, uh, we're very much aware of how the, the need of the gospel is there. And when you think about September 11, can you remember where you were? I was at, it was at 11 o'clock at night for me. 
and I was doing late night study on my dissertation, and then the news broke, and when that hit, uh, it just stopped everything I was doing, as it did with you, and it just paralyzed me to think this can't be happening. And yet the slowly the reality dawned that the tragedy and the trauma was coming. Uh, in my mind, so this really is true. Well, the, the idea is don't forget. And sometimes you just take these celebrations for granted. It's the same thing that when it comes to the cross, you've heard about the gospel so often that you can also take that for granted. And I don't want to do that, but that, that sense of shock, that sense of, oh, I can't, I, you know, just to comprehend, to put your head around the, the unique thing that was happening. Well, the same thing is happening in Morocco today. The, the thousands of people that are dying under rubble or if it's not Morocco, it's Maui. When you think of Maui, and you think about starting all over, sometimes you get these uninvited companions that will slap you up against the wall. And your faith may be like a, a, a weeping willow in a 90 mile an hour wind, and you, you don't know what to do. And that's the idea that if you've ever been caught in circumstances where you can't move, you're paralyzed. There's so many things, so many things that we are afraid of because when we, we see trouble coming, we, we see the storms, we just need to understand God is not the storm. God can calm the storm. But there are things inside of us. There are things on the outside, but there are things on the inside of us. There are storms on the inside. If you don't know the grace of God, you're going to be destroyed. Yesterday I heard of a woman who grew up uh, with an alcoholic father who was very abusive. She was sexually abused. There was abortions involved. And when she got married, um, it continued. The baggage was such that their marriage was stressed out. And the idea that she was paralyzed and depressed for most of her young 25 years. All these things, all these emotions, I want you to feel because you get this point of, oh, and you can't move, and you can't speak, and you don't, you go numb because it's too much. Those images and those emotions scar our imaginations, and we carry them on. But I want to reverse this totally to have you think of just the opposite. And the idea that <clears throat> when you think that Jesus came, the reason why he came was to overcome the evil one. But he said, I've come that they have life. But there's one who's trying to destroy your life, and he's going to steal, kill, and destroy. So I'm gonna, he's going to make it hard for us. But don't forget the words. I have come so that they may have life, and they may have it abundant, abundantly. So instead of being paralyzed by pain or paralyzed by sin, I want you to be paralyzed <laughs> by this grace that when you see God's moving towards us, you'll go, wow. The idea that, that, that we have one 
who is amazing. When Jesus was walking with the disciples, remember what they said about him? When they would hear him teach, they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. They were amazed. Well, you know I like to do these word study. When you think of the word amaze, you get into a maze. And if you get into a maze, you get lost. How many of you have been in these cornfields? In, in those cornfields where you, you walk along and go, which way do I turn? Which way? Do, when, when does this end? And so the idea of amazing, it means to become confused, uh, to become weakened, to, to lose focus, to be confounded, to be stupefied. There's that, that idea. But the idea is that uh, you become weak or crippled. To be paralyzed is to lose energy and you can't move. Well, can you imagine the fact that God's grace is going to come in and paralyze us so that we not are just confounded, but that we are focused and that we ponder and wonder about this grace that's being exposed to us? Moses, when he was leading the wilderness, was paralyzed by that burning bush. And so he turned and he gazed and wondered what what this was all about. Likewise, when Jesus would come in, he would gaze at the people he would touch. And so with the paralytic or the blind man or the man that was mute or the man um, who had the four guys who laid him, broke through the ceiling, whatever God does, it's amazing. And so the idea that Jesus was teaching and his teaching was about God. Now, one of the things that's amazing is something that we take for granted is that Jesus introduced to the Jewish group and then beyond a concept that was not understood well. And Jesus would say that you are to call God Father. Now, why did he say that? Why do we call God Father? Why did Jesus direct us to call him Father? There's lots of words for God. Adonai, Jehovah, Yahweh, El Roy, I'm the God who sees. Jehovah Jireh, I'm the God who provides. Shalom, I'm the God. There's lots of names for God. But Jesus would introduce this one name that is not well known among the Jewish people. How many know Orthodox Jews? Have you ever heard an Orthodox Jew call God their father? Because it doesn't exist. It's only used 15 times in the Old Testament. And 12 of those times are for the father of Israel, corporately, generally, but it's sprinkled out so it's not emphasized. And two are in Isaiah. But this one passage really caught me. It's in Jeremiah. And listen to this passage. It's I'm sure Jesus read this. I myself said, how gladly I would treat you like my children. And I would give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. And I thought you would call me Father and not turn away from following me. And there's the heart of the Father. I want to be involved. I'm going to be the one that blesses you. I'm going to be the one that really paralyzes you with my blessing, my goodness, and my purpose for you. 
but we have turned away. And in our day and age, the question is, why, why is it that people don't want to trust God if he's that good, if he's that gracious? Why is it that, that it's hard to communicate the relevancy of the gospel when people simply aren't interested? And part of that is we've turned away from God and we fulfilled, we try to fill our thinking with something else besides God. And so John would write, do not love the world, but we love the world. And don't love anything in the world. We love lots of stuff in the world. Asaph said, whom do I have in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing else on earth. Well, we desire lots of things on earth. Strawberry pie, chocolate, hot coffee, good vacation, weather, warm showers, we, entertainment. We, got, we fill our lives daily with things. Well, John says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they don't come from the Father. And because they don't come from the Father, they will never satisfy those desires that God put in you. And therefore, they remove us from the love of God. That's what Blaise Pascal said. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God himself, the creator, who made known, made known through Jesus. And so even, even as Christians, we don't see God for who he is. We see God for what he can do for us because we are a culture of self-improvement. How can I get the best life? How can I get the prosperity? That, how can I get what I want? And so God, show me your will, and if it fits in with my plan, I, I will follow you if it, gets, if it benefits me. And so all this idea is, is that the way we think about God and talk about God, and I mentioned last week, it's, it's not very gracious. It's not very good. God had to slap me up the side of my head with a two-by-four, and God's a celestial bully, and he gave me cancer so I'd look up. So our notions of God and the notions of the goodness of God really are, are not very fluent in our, in our conversations. But, ah, but there's one who did come, and the name was Jesus. Because no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is, in, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. That's the NIV. Who is in the bosom of the Father. And when, the, and when John talks about the bosom, John was the one that leaned on the bosom of Christ. And bosom means there's an affection. There's, a, there's an intimacy. There's, there's a oneness. A deep, deep connection. And Jesus had that connection. For he would say, I am the father of one. To, to know God like a friend, to know God like intimately, to know why he made us, to know his purposes, to know his values. And Jesus would go on to say, I'm going to show you all things about this father. And I want you to call him father. Because he's going to show you what he shows me. And the way I relate to my Father is the way I want you to relate to the Father. But he's good. And he's gracious. And he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be, and there's the word again, stunned, stupefied, 
Oh, you got to be kidding. That's great. That's amazing. Philip said at the end, and Philip just, I don't know about Philip, he, he was a slow learner. But after, right before going to cross, Philip said, show us the Father, and it'll be enough. And Jesus says, Philip, don't you know me? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. If you want to know the Father, look at Jesus. If you want to know grace, look at Jesus. How can you say, show us the Father? Because Jesus would train his men, didn't he? On the Sermon on the Mount, remember he would say, uh, when you pray, our Father who art in heaven. Or he would say that your Father, when you go into your closet, your Father sees in secret. You say God sees in secret, but when you say your Father knows you in secret. And all these Gentiles, they're running around, but your Father knows your needs. Your Heavenly Father doesn't want you to worry. Don't have this anxiety. Look at the birds. Look at the fields. Your Heavenly Father feeds them. And your Heavenly Father is intimately acquainted with all your ways. He's not remote. He's not to be a celestial bully. But the idea that that this Father <clears throat> that God's called us to has a comparison, has a connection with the idea that if he's a father, then that means that we are his children. And so when, when Jesus is training his men to walk in this amazing grace of his father, he did something else that was also paralyzing, stupefying. I think of John the... I think of Nicodemus when, 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 when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, oh, you've got to be kidding. I can't do that. I can't, I can't perform that. I mean, what, you expect me to climb back? I can't do that. Well, likewise, in Luke, when Jesus says, <clears throat> when, you, when you pray to your Father, I want you to remember, not only do you pray to your Father, but in Luke 11, one, he says, when you pray to your Father, I want you to remember that you are to become like little children. And so he says, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he says, when you become like little children, um, not child, childish, but uh, childlike, as children. And so he says, when you pray, when you pray, again, Jesus is teaching about prayer because they wanted to learn how to pray. He says, say this, call God Father. Hallowed be thy name. And two things there. One, for some of you, the mention of the word Father is going to trigger all kinds of different emotions, all kinds of different images. I, for one, when I think about that word father, uh, my dad died when I was 10. I was trying to think, I don't, have, I don't have maybe seven to 10 memories of my father. But all of the memories that I have, not one of them is a personal one-on-one -on -one time. They've always been in the 
presence of somebody else. And so I had trouble with this idea that knowing God as a father that's personal, that would be prizing me or loving me in a special way. I had trouble. I still wrestle with that sometimes. <clears throat> but one, he says, call God Father. And the second thing he says, when you call God, you want to hallow his name. Another English word that we don't know or use very well is not Halloween, like the kids say, Halloween is his name. No, it's Hallowed. But the idea of Hallowed means to honor. And the first thing Jesus wants us to do is, when you pray, think about the honor of God. Think about the holiness of God. Think about the person of God. When you're going to God, don't be so caught up with your own things that <clears throat> you forget who he is. Hallowed be your name. Everything that your name is. And what that does is when God turns to you, when you call out the name of God, God turns to those who, who really are looking for him. The idea that when God calls, he turns. And this is the word that I want you to know about grace. Grace, when we talk about, gra <clears throat> when we talk about grace, we often talk about grace as a commodity, a thing. I need five pounds of grace. God, would you give me grace to be more patient? God, would you give me this X? But that's not what the word means. Grace in the Hebrew translation means a turning towards. It's I'm turning towards you. But the attitude with which he turns is one of grace and kindness of mercy because he's going to move and gaze upon you personally because he's intimately acquainted. Even in your womb, he loved you before any person loved you. He knitted you. He, he has plans for you. But the plans would be to honor you as you honor him. And so he would say to his, his disciples that when you pray, uh, pray that you, about God's honor. If you honor their father, as the commandment is in Ephesians, if you honor your father and your mother, it will go well with you. So Jesus is saying, honor him. Know and be stupefied in the wonder of his goodness. But then he says, as we pray today, give us the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Give us a daily bread. <clears throat> But then he would go on to say that you've got to become like children. And the thing about children, if you have a father, Paul said, because you are children, because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave, but a son. Oh, Henry Nguyen talks about the prodigal God as Tim Keller did. And the idea that in that story is that the sons didn't choose the father, but it's the father who's moving towards the son. That's the same for you and for me. You didn't choose God. God chose you. Why on earth would God choose you? Why on God would God turn to you? Would he lift up your blindness, lift up your lameness, lift up your disease? Yes, and a thousand times more. 
But the thing that really was concerned for him is that he was going to lift up the shame and the fear and any obstacle that you would have because he wants you to call him Father. That idea that, that we would gladly step into his presence, that we would have our hearts filled with the one and lean on his bosom. The fact that little kids, there's something about being childlike. Can you remember being a kid? Oh, I ran out into the garden. I saw this yellow jacket. I was curious. I'd never seen a yellow jacket four or five years old. So what did I do? I grabbed that yellow jacket. I got him. Ah, he got me. Kids are so free. They don't have the reservation. They, they just move quickly. But the idea that, that kids, if you say things to them, they believe it's true. If you say, if you say to this kid, there's, there's a little garden uh, over here, and there's moss under that rock, and in that rock there's a little treasure. And the kid's eyes go big. Yeah, I bet that's true. There's something innocent about believing and, and knowing the joy of just being a child. God wants us to be childlike to discover that same kind of gracious kindness of God. And yet it is that kindness of God that when he turns to us and makes us alive in Christ, he takes all of the sin and the guilt, but he removes that pain of sin and the pain and sorrow, and he replaces us with his joy. And that's what the Lord wants his people to be. People filled with, children filled with joy. Children filled with the knowledge of, my father's intimately acquainted with my ways. And I'm going to enjoy walking with him. Well, G.K. Chesterton said it this way. Because children have an abundant, abounding vitality, because they're in spirit, fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated again and again and unchanged. They're always say, do it again. Do it again. I want to hear it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in the monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again. Do it again. To the sun, and the evening, do it again. And to the moon, it may not be the automatic, may not be automatic necessity that makes all the daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he never gets tired of making them. It may be that God has an eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and we've grown old, and our Father is younger than us. You see, once you gaze upon the cross, if you get bored, if you get tired, you get monotonous, you miss this monotonous grace that sets us free. And because of the great love for us, because of the great love for us, God turns to us in grace, and he fills us so that we may be able to turn to those in darkness, in pain, in sin, the way Jesus turns to us. 
Let's close in a word of prayer here. And I just want you to say, when you pray again, that you call God your Father, and you pray that honor Him, pray that the grace that God turns and gives to you, that you would turn and try to honor and give grace to those who don't deserve it. That's our calling, to share the good news, the gospel, that God takes us out of that. So let me stop here, and uh, we'll close with our last song.